And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down last week for a long-planned conversation with my friend Bakari Sellers, colleague from CNN, former state representative in South Carolina. The subject was to be his new memoir, My Vanishing Country, uh, in which he talked about his father's seminal role in the civil rights movement and the work still to be done. Little did either of us know that when we finally sat down for that conversation, that it would be so timely, so in the moment. I'm so glad that we had this chance, and I'm eager to share it with you now. Bakari Sellers, my old friend, it's good to see you. You know, we set this up some time ago. You were going to publish a memoir, and we set up a podcast, even though we've done one before. You could not have known when you wrote this book, even though you said you were in part writing it for Uh, Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and those who have been victims of excessive force by police and lost their lives in incidents uh, that were racially motivated. But you could not have known that in the very period when you were publishing this book and releasing this book that we would go through this wrenching episode or episodes again. And in reading this book, I think I understand a lot more than I did not just about you, but about myself and about this country. First, as a as a friend, thank you for giving me this opportunity and your willingness to give me this platform even before we had these moments. Um, I remind people often, as often as I can, that this moment is not just about George Floyd. It's not just about Breonna Taylor. It's not just about Ahmaud Arbery or David McAtee. Um, David's name isn't called out that much, neither is Breonna's, but David was in Louisville, Kentucky, and they called him um, Mr. Barbecue Man. Uh, David actually fed cops, and then uh, during the protests last week was murdered by um, the Louisville Police Department. And um, ironically enough, as these things happened, their body cameras were not on, similar to the case of Breonna Taylor. Um, But this isn't just about them. It's about 401 years um, that we've been here in this country. Um, It's about um, layers of systemic injustice, racial oppression. And for me, I want to frame the discussion appropriately um, because you you know the names of people like Stokely Carmichael, who I quote often. And Stokely, um, and I have to be quiet in in saying that name because my 17-month-old son is named Stokely too, and he'll come running around the corner and, and hop in our lap real quick. Um, But Stokely said that if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. If you have the power to lynch me, then that's my problem. And so we're talking about these systems of injustice and oppression and deconstructing those systems. You know this. I mean, you you wrote a book that that crept up the New York Times bestsellers list. Um, And you know that you never want to put a book out during uh, a pandemic, to say the least. I've done all of my um, interviews. in shorts and in dress shirts, right? And you want to be out and meet the people and you want to be out and you want to be able to touch people and, and talk about your book. But I also say that this book is decently evergreen because even if we weren't having a pandemic where the overarching majority of individuals dying are black folk, even if we didn't have 
David, Brianna, George, and Ahmad, we would still be dealing with issues of systemic injustice. We would still be dealing with issues Absolutely. of state violence perpetrated against people of color. Um, and so it's somewhat evergreen. And my goal is, my hope is that we can break this cycle. And hopefully when people read this book, it will lend itself to the understanding, which will create some level of empathy whereby we can break this cycle of injustice. Uh, my, my thought when, when I saw George Floyd uh, in his final seconds calling out for his mother, who was no longer with us, um, uh, I started thinking about myself as a parent, my grandchildren, and I started thinking, how do you explain this? How do you tell your children? How do you tell your children why this happens? Why people are so hateful uh, simply because of the color of your skin? And I know that that was, that was, I think, so stirring to me because you have three children, uh, two 17-month-old twins, and we're going to talk about them as well. It also probably, you read this book and you realize this is the very same thoughts that your parents were having. To that point, I, in the book I write about the chapter, Don't Be a Dead Hero, and I, I lay out um, one of the letters that my father, my grandfather wrote to my father about coming home and, um, you know, leaving, leaving, you know, the Philadelphia, Mississippis of the world and the the, the Selmas of the world and, and, and don't be a dead hero is what um, my grandfather said to my father. And during that moment, as you know, um, the, the segment before you, um, people sometimes don't put it together uh, in the way that it gets spliced on social media and everything. But the segment before you oftentimes impacts the way you are going into your segment emotionally and otherwise, because we're sitting there thinking about those things that people say before us. And um uh, George Floyd's brother was on in the segment prior to mine. Um, and it was just so hard to listen to the pain of his brother. I mean, you had a, you had a black dude grown, crying, reminiscing on the fact that, that in eight minutes and 46 seconds, and, um, you know, we just had the Dave Chappelle episode released. And, you know, I, in listening to it, I was like, there was nothing funny about Dave Chappelle's comedy special but it was so good and so appropriate and so timely. And he talked about, in that he talked about being a grown man and calling out for your mother, calling out for your dead mother during that time. And people say, what's different about this? And I say, the thing that's different about this moment is minute two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Because now the country's eyes have been opened to the type of violence and the lack of humanity that people of color can be treated with in this country. There's no one that we know. I'm pretty certain, David, I know you really well, and I'm pretty certain there's no one you know, because there's no one I know that can put their knee on the back of someone else's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. I mean, they treated him. I, I said this on TV and, you know, social media, you got to stay off of it and you delve in sometimes. I said they treated him like a dog. And then somebody tweeted me and said, Bakari, if they if he was a dog, the officers would have already been arrested right now. Right. And yeah. you, you, you think about that. And that lack of humanity is what petrifies me because I have to raise children and black children in this country. And I teach them in this house, especially my daughter, to be unapologetically black and be herself. But I also let her know that there is a truth, a fundamental truth that when she walks outside of these doors, there are 
groups of people who will not give her the benefit of her humanity, which is the tragedy that we're living through. Let, let me let me just delve into the book a little here, because one thing that struck me reading the book is it starts off, you talk about uh, how the murder of a young man named Emmett Till affected your dad. Uh, and Emmett Till uh, was uh, from Chicago. He, he was spending the summer in Mississippi was accused falsely, it turns out, of whistling at a uh, a white woman and was taken out, beaten, shot, and tossed in the river. And what happened was when his body was recovered and returned to his mother, she insisted on keeping the coffin open. And the horrifying image of a young man beaten to the point where he was unrecognizable, shocked the nation, uh, motivated people like your dad, who was a teenager at the time himself. And he then became an activist in part because of that picture. I want to talk about his, his route, but I just want to put a pin in that for a second and say the image of the uh, Freedom Riders in Philadelphia, Mississippi, their car being recovered from uh, like an earthen dam, and then uh, the images of Selma, which really led to the Voting Rights Act because they were so horrific. And I guess my question to you as someone steeped in the history of all this, it feels to me like the George Floyd murder because it was so graphic, so horrific, and so universally seen uh, has the capacity to be one of those moments in history that is galvanizing, it, it sure feels like that to me. And I just, maybe I have leave to be more optimistic than you because I'm white and you're black. But it's been heartening, heartening to uh, see people at least saying, you know what, this is not right. This cannot be. This is, people, people ask that question often, like, does this feel different? And it does feel different. Um, NASCAR banning Confederate flags. Being from South Carolina, people kind of uh, devalue what that means for the culture, but that is, that's huge, right? Um, Taylor Swift coming out and speaking. Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback of, of Clemson, coming out and saying things. Right. Carson Wentz, quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, coming out and, and speaking up. Um, you know, those things really matter, but my father and I have this conversation often, like, in 1955, you had Mamie Till who allowed her son Emmett to um, have his face shown um, in his casket. Um, you had the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which you talked about. You had Goodman, Scherner, and Cheney, in which uh, Andrew Goodman, Mickey Schwerner um, were allies to the movement and paid the ultimate price. Um, you fast forward and you come to Charleston, South Carolina, which I write about as well. Um, because yes, you, we'll you, talk about that. You had... Uh, Clemente Pinckney and eight others who were killed in a church. Um, but we've we've missed moments more so than anything else. I mean, I I go back and I, I remind myself that the, what is it the Fair Housing Act we got because King was assassinated. Um, but we've never truly dealt with these systems. We've never truly confronted them. We've never truly had that radical change. And so there's nothing in this country's history that gives me a great deal of hope that this will be that moment. Mm -hmm. But we have to remain faithful and we have to remain hopeful. Um, you know, we give, I give Mitt Romney a great deal of credit, right? 
But I think about it, and Mitt Romney, he only uttered Black Lives Matter. He didn't have a policy prescription. He didn't, he didn't put forth anything else. But I'm giving him credit for showing up and simply uttering those three words. I mean, it took us seven years. Seven years. That's how long it took us to get people to actually say Black Lives Matter. Right. And, and you're absolutely right. Unless there, it's not just, I mean, I think it begins with um, systemic changes in laws and practices. That's absolutely essential. You mentioned uh, Reverend Pinckney, and I and know you guys were very close. He was a, a mentor of yours in the legislature, and we will talk about that further. But the thing that strikes me about that moment was America focused on guns. Guns became the focus of that debate. Racism was not the focus of that debate, wasn't the focus of that discussion. I think the thing that makes this different is it's causing many, many people to ask deeper questions that go beyond what the police were doing. I think police reform is going to happen in many places because of this. But the real question is, can we confront that history? Can we confront those attitudes? We can build guardrails to keep people from being abused or try to, but can we go deeper and really do soul searching as a country and as individuals and say, what creates the conditions that allow this to happen? David, you're hitting on something that's so important because when we have these conversations, for me personally, you know, when we talk about my father and his role in the Orangeburg Massacre, you know, and I talk about it being the most important day of my life, people don't pinpoint the trauma that goes with that. They don't pinpoint the fact that uh, my father actually served time on death row, right? And the trauma that goes along with that after his bond was denied. Um, they don't pinpoint the fact that, um, you know, he actually got sentenced to a year in prison and served seven months or his daughter, um, my big sister was born while he was um, in prison. They don't pinpoint the trauma of my mother, who um, uh, uniquely or, or traumatically enough, um, my mother had to carry and give birth to um, a child while her husband was in prison. Or the fact that for two decades plus, my father had to try to live in the South, in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a felony on his record. Right. We know how difficult that is for a black man. And then when you look at all of those things, the biggest tragedy is that this country just whitewashed or overwrote the history. And people know what happened in Kent State. I mean, there were white kids. Some people know to a lesser extent what happened in Jackson State. But people don't know the history of Orangeburg. It's a very little known fact. Three people were killed. I mean, at the hands of law yeah. enforcement. It, you, uh, the, the, just a random Jeopardy fact. If you, when you're on Jeopardy one day, David, they should invite you. But um, the Orangeburg Massacre was the first time in this country's history that law enforcement officers were charged with federal civil rights crimes for shooting um, black folk. They were all found not guilty. But in two hours, <laughs> in two hours, everyone should read it. And not just because you'll be smarter on Jeopardy. <laughs> but. As a journalist, you'll appreciate this. One of the things I've been looking for in my quest, because I've always wanted to. It's hard. It's 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 I finally found uh, the name of one, not the other. Um, but I've always looked for the two. My dad was convicted uh, uh, by a jury of uh, 10 black, 10 whites and two blacks. And I've always wanted to talk to those two black folk 
Um, I wanted to talk to them as a lawyer about the weight of the evidence. I wanted them to talk to about talk to them about the pressure of uh, being in that room with 10 other white guys, that pressure of the trial and how they felt about convicting my dad. I don't, I don't and I don't I don't want to do it from a sense of anger or uh, I'm not doing it from a sense of trying to, um, uh, you know, pin them down. I, I that's just one of the things, one of the, you know, you, you have this list of people in your lifetime you always want to have a conversation with. No, that would be fascinating. It would be fascinating. You should absolutely do that. Yeah, your dad, Cleveland Sellers, was at a very young age. He, he was one of the early organizers of SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was active in the, really, in the heyday of the civil rights movement in the early 60s, close to Dr. King. You refer to Stokely Carmichael as Uncle Stokely. These are sort of iconic names in the civil rights movement, which is great in the retelling. In the time, he was a late teenager and a guy in his early 20s who was going into the most dangerous places in this country to organize. He was. We mentioned uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman uh, and their murder in Mississippi. It was your dad who was sent out to try and find them after they disappeared in that environment in which there was menace everywhere. This defines your young life, this history, and that, that's very clear from this book. Later in the book, you, you write really movingly, and this means something to me because this issue is very important to me, and I always appreciate when people talk about it, about your own battles with anxiety and your mom's battles with anxiety. But early in the book, you describe going to reunions of the Orangeburg Massacre, veterans who survived, survivors of the Orangeburg Massacre, watching your dad, who's uh, really, as you describe him here, uh, a tough guy, watching his face fill with tears as he recalled that. And you said your mom really didn't want you to go. I mean, in retrospect, that's a lot of history for a young boy to absorb eight, nine, ten years old? I tell people often that I'm a child of the civil rights movement. Um, I wear that with such pride. It's a small club, though. You know, it's not, it's not a whole lot of us that are part of this club. It's a small club. I talk to Bernice King all the time, Dr. King's um, uh, daughter, uh, Michael Julian Bond, who's Uncle Julian's son, um, James Foreman's son, uh, you know, we we have all of these conversations. Uh, Malcolm's daughters, I know very well. Um, and when you think about just, I, I go back to this word of trauma because, especially in the South, and I mean, I, I you know, I, I do, I have my biases in the book. I do say that the South is um, the epicenter of, of, of black cultural uh, political liberation ideology. And meaning that, you know, you had the SNCC, the CORE, the SCLC, Black Panther Party that all emanated from the South. And I try to I want to outline that to rebut this um, culture of anti-intellectualism that people associate with the South. Um, but in, in going through all of those things and talking about uh, my village, because I tell myself that I'm a product of the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And in outlining all of these different traumas that we go through. I just think about the fact that every single day of my lifetime, I got to come downstairs in the kitchen while my dad was cooking spaghetti and frying fish on Fridays and live with a real life hero. But you also saw that his 
eyes don't pop like they used to from shedding so many tears and his shoulders weren't as upright as they once were. I mean, the the traumatic part of that personal experience, I want to get to one personal experience and one like 50,000 foot view experience, David. The traumatic part yeah. of that is is that the state of South Carolina, it still blames my father, right? I mean, there's the political overlay of Spiro Agnew. It was Spiro would have never been vice president had the had the Orangeburg massacre never happened. Governor McNair was the front runner to be governor of South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. South Carolina. You can't have three Negroes killed on your watch and still be and still be the the vice president. And not only did we have have those issues, um, but they still blame my father, and he still carries that with him. And for me, that's difficult to to see my father go through that. And the fifty thousand foot view is that even with um, even with the success that I've had, and this book is now a New York Times bestseller, and it's like great. And people ask me to sign it all the time. And you know, I, I say that even at one of the pinnacles of my achievements, which is what you've been talking about, I, it, it reminds me of what Al Sharpton said. And I, I am not someone who uh, ascribes to everything that Al does. Um, but he said something in the funeral of George Floyd the other day. He was talking about um, the power of a name. And every time I sign my name, Bakari Sellers, I'm not signing something that's mine. I'm signing um, Sellers is the the name of those who owned me at the time. You know, as my family left, uh, we do know we came from the west coast of Africa and um, were brought up on the shores of, of, of South Carolina. Two brothers, one ended up going to the Millhouse Plantation, one ended up going to the Sellers Plantation. And so when you think about that trauma, whether or not it's, it's that signing of your name, a name that's not yours, or my father, and going through the injustices that he went through. Um, you know, it, it's it's a painful um, experience, but I, I try to write that pain and give it life, but I also try to give people a sense of hope and perseverance, knowing that we can overcome this, but we have to do it together. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. Your father was essentially framed as the organizer of the, the, you know, there was an incident the night before at a bowling alley, and and then there was a demonstration uh, in which young women were brutalized by police, and there was a demonstration the next night. Your father was sleeping and was uh, awakened because there was this trouble, and they summoned him, and he arrived there, and it was clear, according to your rendition, and I... I have to believe it's right that because he was a celebrated organizer and leader of the civil rights movement, there was an interest in framing him up for this, and they were looking for him. The reason he was actually staying on campus is because there was a tank pointed at his home. <laughs> yeah. And my my father, I hate these words. Oh my God! And we say them so often they get they get shouted out on TV a lot. But they deemed him to be an outside agitator, which are words that just make my skin crawl. But we've heard those ro- we've heard those words a lot and descriptors a lot, yeah. especially as we see the protests and riots um, and movements today. Yeah, because he was involved in what John Lewis calls good trouble. That's right, good trouble. Uh, yeah. So I'm interested in how, uh, just returning to how this affected you, one thing that w- struck me about your own history is how precocious you were. You 
graduated from high school when you were 12. You attended college when you were 16. When you were 17, you went and interned in Washington for Congressman Jim Clyburn, who uh, is a universally known uh, figure and a uh, giant figure in the politics of South Carolina. And while you were in that office interning that summer, you plotted out, and I admire you for acknowledging it, you plotted out your first campaign for state, the state legislature, which you ended up running when you were 21. You were 22 when you entered the legislature. Uh, and then you ran for lieutenant governor at 29, a race that you lost. And now you've written your memoir at 36. I'm 35. All right. Well, that's even better. <laughs> so you're making my point for me. Barack Obama wrote his at 33, so you're not that precocious. <laughs> but my question to you is, how much pressure did you feel to make something of yourself to be a leader in your own right? And why did politics so early in your life seem like the route that you wanted to take? So my, my dad would give us these big choices. My dad from the School of King, and you were, you remember Dr. King, he would always give you these binary choices. He wasn't someone who bored you with a lot of verbiage. He would give you like injustice or justice, right? Um, my dad gave us choices like that. My dad said that we could be anything we wanted to be, but we had to be a change agent. And so for me, uh, my father, my brother went into the ministry. My sister's a doctor. She's actually a doc. She's a deputy chief of staff at the Veterans Hospital. So she takes care of our, our veterans. And for me, I, I, I thought I was going to be a doctor um, until I realized that I suck at math. Um, a lot of people are going to be like, well, how did you graduate high school at 16? Well, the trick is I went to kindergarten um, for one semester. After Christmas, they put me in first grade. And then the next year I went to third grade. So I skipped two halves in a whole. Uh, I also never learned uh, basic math during that time period. So it petrified me my entire life. I'm a lawyer now. The only thing I know how to do is count by thirds, right? Like most lawyers. That's all I that's all I know. You're not a, you're not a count votes. Well, yeah, all I need is 50% plus one, right? So these, <laughs> <laughs> the math, the math isn't that hard. The, yeah. the math isn't that difficult. Uh, and so, uh, you know, being a change agent was, was something that I've always thought about. And then I went to Washington, DC and I noticed that everybody on their wall in Washington, you know, this from the lobbyists to the staffers, everybody has a JD on their wall. Right. I mean, it's just it, it people, nobody practices law. But everybody has a JD. And so I was enamored with the doors that would that were opening from that process. And, you know, I talked to the I talked I talk in the book about the story about Catherine Harris and the the rotten peaches, which is a, a really true story. Uh, and I just I, I just became I was I was really poor. Um, I live with my aunt Florence. And uh, I'm, I don't know if when you guys were in the Eisenhower building and in the in the uh, East and West Wing of the White House, whether or not you took part in the uh, congressional receptions that they had there. But as a poor as a poor intern, that's the only way that's the only place we knew where to eat. And so Congressman Clyburn had a great, a great um, appropriations committee assignment. And so we ate really good um, and we drank really good while we were up there. But I got that bug. And, you know, when you get the political bug, the combination of going to D.C. and the combination of working for Shirley Franklin. Mayor of Atlanta. She actually, um, my dad got the job. My dad helped me get that job uh, with Shirley Franklin because Shirley Clark, as she was her maiden name, went to Howard University. 
and Stokely and my dad and everyone knew Shirley Clark and, and she hired me. But the combination of Shirley Clark Franklin and Jim Clyburn and Atlanta um, in Morehouse College just gave me this political bug. And I knew that was going to be the way that I was going to change the world. And we plotted out this journey really, really early. Um, I ran against somebody who was 82 years old, had been in office for 24 years, which was longer than I had been born. Um, and we actually went back to the Jimmy Carter, um, you know, kind of metric of, of, of campaigning, which is knocking on doors. Um, and we won. I, I help out a lot of candidates now. Um, a couple of the most dynamic candidates we have in this country or, or mayors or elected officials are Randall Wolfen, the mayor of Birmingham, um, Frank Scott, the mayor of Little Rock, um, uh, of course, Vi Lyles in Charlotte and Keisha Bottoms in Atlanta. And I remember when 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 Randall uh, told me he was going to run, he was running against somebody who'd been on Birmingham City Council since 84 and had been mayor of Birmingham already. And I said, man, are you going to knock on doors? And man, we went out there and we knocked on so many doors in Birmingham. Like that's essential. Um, but I learned those things from, uh, you know, being young, but being involved and getting that bug in D.C. and Atlanta. And I still have it. So we'll get back into it one day soon, hopefully. That was pre uh, pre COVID. The knocking on doors right now is a little, little challenging. It is. I'm trying to, you know, and we and I hope you one day have somebody on. Uh, maybe maybe you can get um, Pluff on or or uh, or somebody who who runs these campaigns. I'm interested to see what campaigns are going to look like in this COVID era. I mean, it's going to change. I think that the this has just accelerated digital campaigning. I actually think. Campaigns will be more effective for having gone through this period because good campaigns marry the old and the new. I mean, it always comes down to voter contact, and it's a question of how you use the tools that are available to you to do that. I, I agree with that. I agree with the digital age, but you remember you're talking to a country boy from Denmark, um, South Carolina, yeah. to everyone listening. Uh, and we, that access is still the socioeconomic. Yeah, no, listen, man. I'm sitting in rural Michigan, and the broadband services is shaky here. And, and well, let me tell you know, this to to highlight that, to put a pin on it, as we move on. Um, you know how we switched to vit, uh, to uh, um, virtual learning in South Carolina. We had to um, wire uh, many of our school buses with Wi-Fi and go and put them in communities particularly of black folk who didn't have access so that they could actually finish their school year. I mean, we said before that the issue is not just uh, police community relations. The issue is permeates every aspect of our lives. You represented an area in South Carolina and you, you campaigned on this and you addressed it all your years in the legislature called the corridor of shame because of the deficiency of uh, educational opportunity for kids. That just is a prescription for being mired in poverty. And this broadband issue is another reflection of that. Tell me about your years in the legislature. You arrived as a 22-year-old. You, you wrote about the fact that you uh, served with some uh, luminaries, mostly on the other side, Nikki Haley, Senator Scott. Tim Scott was there at the time. Mick Mulvaney, a fallen meteor of the Trump universe. Nick got fired and re, uh, relocated. He's now um, the uh, part of the envoy to Ireland. Uh, but he was coming back across country when he was removed from his spot. I, I, I tell people often that one of the things I learned was about the value of relationships. Because when you're in the minority party, 
um, that's that is what your value. That's what you have. That's how you have to um, move forward. And I was very, very cognizant of the fact that I had to meet people where they were. And um, Tim was a good friend, although I remind people that Tim was a young legislator. I had been there for a few years. And so he I had to, you know, we hazed him a good bit. <laughs> we made him, uh, you know, buy our lunch and stuff. Um, Mick, I sat beside Nikki and Nikki, um, Nikki's story to and her rise to governor. I mean, to be completely honest, you can you can literally thank Sarah Palin for that. But she beat all the boys. She beat Henry McMaster and Andre Bauer. She beat Gresham Berry. So she beat the lieutenant governor, the attorney general, and a sitting member of the United States Congress to win. But even through all of those things, um, to get back to kind of like the underlying, um, you know, uh, uh, jump off point for our discussion. I had to go outside for eight years and every time I had a rough day, I, I took a deep breath under the auspices of the Confederate flag, which flew proudly in front of the Capitol. Um, I represented the area. And when we talk about these systems of oppression, people ask, what are you talking about? Well, Denmark, Bamberg County, where I'm from, Orangeburg County, well, we lost our hospital um, because, uh, you know, Obamacare, right? Uh, There were Southern governors who uh, didn't want any parts of that. So they made political calculuses not to expand Medicaid, which devastated rural hospitals. Um, uh, I live in a food desert where uh, you can't go three, four miles and get access to healthy alternatives. We're drinking unclean air and uh, I'm excuse me, drinking unclean water and breathing in polluted air. Um, I, I even in the book, one of the things I highlight is CAFTA and NAFTA and the how CAFTA and NAFTA. We, we really haven't done anything to reinvigorate these these southern rural economies after CAFTA and NAFTA shipped all of our textile mills uh, and, and manufacturing companies um, overseas. And so this convergence and now we're in a pandemic. And so now it's no, you know, it's no secret why people of color and black folk are, are dying at higher rates. Um, and this is what this is where I represent it. And so it was a fight every single day. But I can tell you, I was so blessed. I, I don't know if I would ever go back to anyone's um, state legislature. It was really, really a difficult challenge when I enjoyed. Uh, but um, th- those issues of race were always there and always at the forefront. I can imagine that there'll be people who are listening to this and they'll hear those names, uh, Mulvaney and Scott and Haley, and they'll say, how could you be friendly with them? Uh, They have carried all this water for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is uh, a white supremacist, a racist. How can you be friends with them? Let me just say, I'm still friends today with Mick. I'm still friends today with, with Nikki. I talked to Tim Scott daily. I think if we're going to have you, we talked about police reform passing. One of the reasons we're going to make sure that police reform passes is because Tim Scott's on that side. Um, you know, their politics is all types of just screwed up. Um, Donald Trump has has put a grip on this Republican Party that's not going to go away after we beat him in November. Right. This this Donald Trump Republican Party is going to be around for the next decade. Um, I am applauding Tim and, and Nikki when they speak out, and I'm chastising them when they don't speak out enough. But I think one of the problems in this country is that we've kind of retreated to our silos and relationships have been destroyed over politics. And um, maybe it's an age old and maybe there are people who would criticize me for um, appreciating my friendship with Tim and Nikki. Um, 
but I, I challenge them to be better than they are um, when it comes to some of these issues. Um, but I also know their heart. I know, I know what type of son is Tim is to his mother. I know what type of wife is and mother is Nikki is to her husband and 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 um, children. And um, in South Carolina, as you're navigating this political process, you really don't. You're really compelled to. I wasn't in Massachusetts. I wasn't in Illinois. I wasn't in California. Like we have to build relationships with our Republican colleagues if we're going to um, have any success in representing our constituents. And I don't have any regrets and I don't apologize for it at all. Yeah. Look, um, you know, I come from that school of politics and I believe in it. Uh, I think that in a democracy, if you're going to get things done, as you say, you have to build relationships. But um, as you know, that is a uh, that that is a heatedly debated proposition among some. Uh, and I think one of the things that Trump has done is he's so polarized the country, uh, and so torqued up the heat, and especially uh, around issues of race and culture, that um, people respond uh, in kind, and uh, you know, and that is dangerous. That's why I think Biden is perfect for this moment. We talk about my book coming out during the middle of a pandemic and we talk about Ecclesiastes chapter three teaches us that there's a there's a time and a season for everything. Right. Um, If there was any antithesis to Donald Trump's lack of compassion and empathy, there's only one politician who I know whose skill set is compassion and empathy. Right. That politician is Joe Biden. Um, And although Joe Biden may not be the orator that, that Barack Obama was. Um, he definitely has this skill set, which is essential for this time frame. And, um, you know, I just I, I hope people read this book. I hope black folk read it and get a sense of hope and get a sense of perseverance and faith. I hope when white folk read this book, they get a sense of understanding, because one of the things we have in this country, David, is an empathy. Um, and you talk about empathy a lot, but we have an empathy. Yes. deficit. I mean, if we're going to get through this, we have to begin to have conversations about empathy. And I think that Biden can actually usher in um, yeah. that skill set of empathy. I feel so deeply that we have to see the humanity in each other. Uh, we have to find the humanity in each other and try and understand each other and walk in each other's shoes. And I totally agree with you. You mentioned Nikki Haley. She was governor at the time of the Mother Emanuel massacre. I want you to talk a little bit about that. You describe in detail in the book how you personally experienced that, because as I, re- I mentioned earlier, uh, earlier Rev- Reverend Pinckney, Senator Pinckney, uh, was a colleague of yours. I-, I believe you were in Charleston. Tell me about how that impacted on you. Clem actually went out um, in a way that knowing Clem, that's how I would expect. And what I mean by that is is this. They let a straggly white boy they'd never seen before enter their church and worship with them. They never knew, they'd never seen Dylan Roof straggly with, um, with a backpack on. And they didn't sit Dylan on the other side of the church, right? They sat Dylan right beside Clem in the circle. And they had a full hour of, uh, a full hour of, of worship and Bible study. And um, after they worshiped for a full hour... Um, they were given the benediction and praying and Dylan opened fire and he shot all of them. Um, not many people know this. I hope you know, with my respect to Jennifer, um, I'll share with you that um, 
Clem actually made it to the hospital. He was he was the only person who was um, alive and made it to the hospital. Um, he died there, um, and it just it I had never felt that type of pain in my chest before, and I was so hurt. I still am. And you know that most people in Charleston forgave. I'm not that far along in my journey yet. I haven't forgiven Dylan Roof. It was a it was a weird it was a weird feeling. It's somebody ripping your heart out your chest, and you know that they did it simply because you're, they were black. And um, I was actually in town uh, for a fundraiser with Hillary Clinton about a mile away, not even a mile, like two blocks away. And uh, there was a lot of media there, a lot of attention paid, and. Um, it was a devastating day, and I, I recall standing in front of that church with my father on Melissa Harris Perry show back when she was on MSNBC, and I was crying and shedding a tear, and I, I said something which which I still believe to be true that my father at the time was seventy, and I was um, I was thirty, and we were sharing too many of the same experiences, and so just like today, I'm hopeful that we can break that cycle. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. I mentioned earlier that you wrote about anxiety. Talk about a little bit about that and your struggles with anxiety, and because at that a moment like that has to be unbearable. It was. It was a lot. Um... I, uh, my anxiety, they say that it's unreasonable fears, right? I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's the medical definition. My fears are of death and failure. And I wrote about it, it's particularly for black men because black men have to begin to talk about these mental health issues more than we have been. Um, and that scenario, that incident, that murder, those murders in Charleston definitely did not help. But I try to use that anxiety as a superpower. That sounds really cheesy, I know, but help me, let me um, cope the way that I do. <laughs> and I just, I, I utilize my anxiety to make the most of every 24-hour period I possibly can. And so when I went to Charleston, everything, every single day, I just wanted to lift up Clem's voice. And this time, it's so hard for me when I think about that massacre because it happened five years ago. And it happened um, nearly um, around the same week. Um, and it's so hard because Clem's daughters won't be able to fix him Father's Day breakfast. And I just, I think about that so much and it's such a difficult plight. And so I know we're, we're kind of wrapping up, but I do want to say that as my father lived for Emmett Till and lived for Goodman, Turner and Cheney and Henry Smith, Sam Hammond and Delano Middleton, I now live for Trayvon. I live for Michael. I live for Clemente and those other eight. I live for Brianna and... I'm David. I live for George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. And unfortunately, to be black in this country, that list just keeps getting longer and longer. Well, and, and you live for Kai and, and Stokely and for Sadie. They keep uh, me going. And, and I want to talk to you about that because the, at the end of the book, you describe your own health care experience. And your wife, Ellen, went into the hospital with twins, and things went very, very badly. But you put it in a really important context, but talk about grueling and intolerable. I've had three unique experiences with healthcare in this country. One is, of course, our hospital closing. Um, the other two are um, 
very personal. My wife gave birth to Sadie at uh, five, Stokely at five twenty-eight, Sadie at five thirty-three. By ten o'clock, she <laughs> was. Um, by ten o'clock, she was um, hemorrhaging, and she lost seven units of blood. She spent the first thirty-six hours of our kid's life in ICU, and I, I uh, had to be her chief advocate. The overlay of that, the political overlay, is that um, there are so many, so many black women um, who go through this, and it crosses socioeconomic levels. Um, if you're black, if you're a black woman, you're three times as likely, four times as likely to die from in childbirth than white women. Um, and then um, two months later, we found out that my little Sadie had a liver problem. And for 93 days, she was on the liver transplant waiting list. 93 days, she was really skinny, had a big belly. She was yellow, but all she did was smile. And we went through a very broken transplant system in this country. And, um, uh, you know, the, the um, amazing part was on September 1st, she got the gift of life. And um, this year, while we're going through COVID, and while everybody's stressed out over going through COVID, we're just happy that everybody's healthy after going through the year we went through last year yeah. and counted as joy. But having those experiences in this healthcare system even re rededicate myself to um, ensuring that people have access. No, you point out that in your hometown, if a woman like Ellen might not have made it if she had to rely on healthcare locally there. That's a fact. Um, and that's the blessing. And I tell people that um, because I came from and have those blessings, my job is to make sure that everyone else has access. Um, that's as honest and true as I can be that I was so emotional, but I had to be as strong as I could during that time period. And I, as, a, as a husband, as a father, um, my wife would ask questions like, um, did God give us Sadie just to take her away from us? And you just can't imagine laying in bed beside your wife. And that's the question that's asked because she's being strong, too. And you don't know how to answer it. You just say, no, um, sweetheart, we're going to make it as we always do. And it's just, um, it, was, it was a really, really tough year, really tough year. The, the thing that really ripped me up in your book was the image of you sitting there. They took Ellen away. She was in the ICU. And there you are holding your newborn twins. And it reminded me of um, uh, when, uh, my wife had breast cancer uh, 20 something years ago, my kids were small. One of them was quite ill. And uh, this news came that she had breast cancer. And at first, we didn't know how, how serious it was. And she is the absolute hub, Susan, of my family. And we've survived uh, my daughter's chronic illness, epilepsy, because of her strength. And we came through it. And I remember the first thing I thought was, how how are we going to survive? How are these kids? How are we going to make it? I tell people that I said the college prayer. I don't know if you said the college prayer, which is, <laughs> uh, dear God, if you get me through this moment, I'll probably, I, I promise I'll never do X again in my life. <laughs> I said that prayer so much um, because of, of where we were. And um, um, for me, um, that experience, it just, it literally taught me so much. And it taught me to appreciate family and go through moments and have joy like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you said something earlier, um, and we we do have to wrap up, but I, I don't want to let this go by. You said there are two things that create anxiety in you. One is, is death, and the other is failure. You haven't had much failure in your life. Uh, you ran one race for lieutenant governor, and you lost. Um, and But you said that it's like a little death. And I was wondering, 
why is failure so frightening to you? Because I, I live on the shoulders and I stand on the shoulders of people who've given so much. And being black in this country, you don't have uh, a whole lot of room for failure. And I don't want to let those people down. I mean, it's the, the simple as I can put it. I don't want to let my father down, Jimmy Lee Jackson, Medgar Evers, Emmett Till, um, and now Sandra and Brianna. I, don't, I just don't want to let them down. So what's next? I'm going to hire David Axelrod and run for United States Congress. <laughs> and I'm getting you out of retirement, and I'm going to run for Congress one day soon. We'll, we'll see when that happens. Um, hopefully, as you see, I'm wearing my Kamala sweatshirt. Uh, maybe she will be the uh, VP, and we'll see if any opportunity. By the way, is that your recommendation? Uh, it's a layup to a point to, to select Kamala. The only problem with you support it. You supported her for president, so this is you. You've got a very close relationship with her. You you feel she's the right choice. The only problem with uh, Democrats and layups is that sometimes we we miss layups. Yeah, but um, there is this discussion about and Kamala. Harris is obviously she's been at the top of the list of potential VPs from the very beginning of this uh, process. Now we've gone through this. Um, do, do you think it increases the imperative for Biden to choose an African-American? I think it took uh, Amy Klobuchar off the board and it, it ensures that there is going to be a black woman, whether or not it's Val Demings or Marsha Fudge or Susan Rice, I actually think you would have to tell me that, but I think it's probably Susan Rice and Kamala more than anybody else. Um, and I think that it, he has to if he wants to activate the base and he wants to seize this moment. You said earlier that, you, you know, as a, a black man in America, your level of optimism is tempered by the experience of history. What do you think is going to come of this moment? I can't answer that, David. I mean, I, I, I will say that I'm hopeful, I'm prayerful, I'm faithful. But I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly hope that my children, especially the twins, grow up in a different environment. I'm sad that my 15-year-old daughter has to go out and march for Black Lives Matter and she doesn't get to just be 15. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to get Joe Biden elected so we can begin to change the trajectory of this country. But I honestly just don't know the answer to that question. Well, whatever the trajectory of the country is, I'm pretty sure that you're going to have something to say about it. So, uh, Bakari Sellers, I appreciate you as a friend. I appreciate you for writing this book, and I really recommend it to everyone, black and particularly white in this country, because uh, it explains a lot about the moment we're in and the challenge that we face. So thank you for writing it. I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful for you allowing me on this podcast and your friendship. And people don't know how much we talk, but I'm thankful for your sage wisdom and guidance. And one day I'm going to dust you off and get you out of retirement to run some. <laughs> I'm going to give you my wife's phone number. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Picard. Great being with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.